Uh, If you would, grab a Bible and turn it to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Real quickly, whether you're new here today or new online with us today, uh, thankful that you've trusted us with your Sunday mornings. And I'm also just encouraged um, to remind you that um, although uh, not all churches do this, if you're unfamiliar with it, we do celebrate the traditional weeks of Advent every year. And so this is a thing for us, just so that you know that. And uh, this year, the theme that we are uh, resting on is the theme that light has come. Light has come. And for the first time in many years, I had to go back and, and check just to make sure uh, I will be coming uh, with our Advent theories theme out of John chapter 1 this, this uh, year. And I'll be actually reading out of John 1, 1 through 18 every week uh, for the next few weeks. And, and, and real quickly, before that sounds like a lot of retreading of the same territory over and over, uh, if you have been a participant in our community Bible reading journal, Uh, you know that you have come upon scriptures you've read in the past that for whatever reason, um, uh, you are reminded again the depths of the scriptures and how even though you've read something, maybe even recently, how it's so rich that you're struck by something about God, what he has said, what he has promised, uh, what he has commanded uh, over and over. And so I just I just in faith believe that we're going to do that over and over over the next few weeks, and every week something new is going to stand out for you in uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Having said that, I just want to go ahead and lay my cards on the table regarding today. Today we are going to see how the light has come as nothing less than the very Word of God. And, and we won't have to go long to see that the text is very much wanting you to understand that. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Um, Real quickly, a lot of people read over that section and go, why is that inserted here? We'll actually talk about that here in a couple of weeks as to why that's inserted here. Um, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me, he ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness 
we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now no one has ever seen God, the only God, though, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. For the remainder of our time, we're going to answer three brief questions that seem to beg themselves as I was working through our text throughout this week. The first is this, what is the Word of God? What is the Word of God? That may sound elementary, that may sound remedial, or it may sound intriguing to you. I don't know, but we should not walk away from this text believing that the light has come as the Word of God without also answering and making sure we all understand what is the Word of God. Secondly, in what ways is Jesus the Word of God? In what ways is Jesus the Word of God? And finally, how is the Word of God, Jesus, light for us? How is He? In what way is He light for us? And He is light for us, and hopefully we'll be answering that question quite clearly before we end today. First question was this, though. What is the Word of God? Well, quickly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to compact this a bit, a bit, and so I'm not giving you a full theology of the Word of God, but um, to begin with, the Word of God is the gospel itself. Uh, most of the time when we read through our New Testament, um, many people assume when it says the Word, it's referring to the Bible or to the Scriptures. It is not. The, the Bible or the Scriptures are usually referred to as the sacred writings or the Scriptures or other things. When it says the Word, oftentimes, especially in much of Paul's writing, it's referring to the gospel message itself. And so when we're talking about the Word of God, the Word of God is the gospel message. Secondly, the Word of God is God's just plain communication. His communication, His words to us, if you will. His speech to us. To us. And it's worth noting at least two aspects to the Word of God being God's communication. And the first is this. If the Word of God is communication, it means that God is a communicator. <laughs> he's a communicator. Don't let that be common to you, that he's a communicator. Like, that's a big deal, that God communicates, and he does so, not like that person in your household, whether it's a mom or dad or a kid or, or a sibling who you can't seem to get to talk to you, um, or that moody pre- or post-teenager that won't talk to you. You don't have to do that with God. He initiates his communication on his own. He talks to us whether we asked for it or not. A holy being does not have to do that to a common person. Yet he does. That is amazing. He communicates with us. Only in Christianity does God speak to people, by the way. God usually is too good for us too distant to be near us, to say words to us. In fact, the Bible refers to idols, which are representative of all false gods or all false objects of worship, are oftentimes referred to as dumb or mute. To contrast them with the one true God 
who is not dumb or mute, who communicates. That is an attribute of God, by the way, is that he communicates, he talks, he gives speech. He's different than any other God. In fact, we may even call this nothing less than divine speech. And so all communication that God gives us, all the words he gives us, is divine speech. Now, that leads me to my second note regarding communication, and that is the scope of God's communicating, the scope of his communicating. You see, his speech is not just words of conversation. It's actually something that we call revelation, revelation. Now, when I say revelation, I'm not talking about the last writing in the scriptures. If you want to be of the utmost technicality, that is considered the revelation to the Apostle John or the revelation of the Apostle John, however you want to say it. But when I say revelation, I mean revelation in the sense of a revealing by the divine. It's revelation. He is revealing something of who he is, what we should know about his creation, what he's done and created, and what he's doing. Revelation. And so his communication is unique from our communication in that it is capital R, Revelation. And he does this in many ways, by the way. It's not just one way he communicates through revelation. He does it through the cosmos, through nature, through the elements that we, we see in our world. In fact, we see this in, in Romans. He says, even if people did not hear all the technical and, 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 and details of what people might hear if they were to hear the scriptures preached to them, that we are still held responsible because there is enough of a testimony given by the cosmos itself. That the cosmos is screaming loud and clear what we need to know to continue to pursue and seek the Lord. And so the cosmos is the way he reveals himself, revelation, but also words themselves, like literal language. And that's where we really come into something called special revelation, and the, the scriptures are, are, are special revelation. They're very unique amongst the sacred writings of this world. These are the very words of God. In fact, in describing themselves, the Bible calls itself spirit-breathed words. Each human being in their own personality who wrote various part, portions throughout the thousands of years the Bible was, was, was assembled, each of them was carried along by what the Bible calls the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. And he carried them along and gave voice to what we read in our scriptures. And so these scriptures are the words of God, the very words of God. And so that, of course, leaves us to the Spirit. The Spirit also reveals. In fact, the Spirit was given to us. One of His duties is, as we read the writings of God in the Scriptures that God gave voice to, that He helps us understand it through the Holy Spirit. So he reveals. And so that little trick of us going through the community Bible reading journal, you're thinking, man, I just noticed something new. Maybe. Or maybe the Spirit of God gave you something new. 
Sometimes it's just our rational heads, our, our faculties that, that notice something that we just skimmed by, but sometimes it's not that. It is very much the Spirit of God. And it's usually aimed at something probably more personal to us. It kind of links the Scripture to our lives in a, life in a way that's very specific to us. And so Revelation, God's communicating, includes the Old Testament law, of course, the New Testament, all of God's declarations, His promises, His commands, visions that people had, the narratives that we read in our scriptures, all revelation. It's all God communicating in various forms and genres of literature. So the Word of God is the gospel. It is the gospel message. The Word of God is God's speech or his communication to us in all of its varied forms. But the word of God is also the God that we know as Jesus, God the Son. The word of God is God the Son. This is what we have right here, John 1. In the beginning was the word. This is referring to Jesus because this is a a story, a narrative of the gospel from John about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And then further on in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word of God is God the Son, Jesus. So that leads us to our second question today. In what ways is Jesus the Word of God? In what ways is Jesus the Word of God? Well, first of all, Jesus is God incarnate, His promised kept incarnate. His promise kept to act on His promises for redemption of human beings. Jesus is and always was God's plan for redemption. Jesus is God's divine plan for redemption. He is literally God's creative word. John 1.1, it says, In the beginning, in the beginning, not, not at the manger, not at the announcement of the star, not, not at anything else we associate with Christmas, but in the beginning, we're talking Genesis 1 beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this text is not here planted in John's gospel account merely to fill in some gaps that we might have for Genesis chapter 1. Remember Genesis chapter 1? The one where God creates, and you're wondering, what's Jesus doing? Here's what he was doing. He was with him. That's not what it's doing. This isn't, this isn't a prequel, trying to give some backfill story. He's actually saying something here. He's saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, emphasis yet again, in the beginning. In other words, Jesus is the Word of God in that from the very beginning, the first creative act, He was always God's plan. From creation forward. This is not just to place him at creation. This is to place him at the beginning of God's plan for redemption. He says he was always plan A from creation forward. He was not plan B because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. 
He was plan A from the beginning. He was always going to be God's redeemer, God the Son. His incarnation was simply the fulfillment of God's original creation purposes. And so Jesus is the word of God in that he is the actual answer to the promise that redemption would come. His incarnation was the word of God that he keeps his promises and that he has kept his promise. Second, Jesus is not simply the word of God in that he is God's promise kept, but he is the word of God in that he is God's voice in its greatest form. He was the definitive, he is the definitive voice of God. He is God's saving word. In John chapter 12, if you skipped ahead in John, he says, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So he does not speak on his own accord. He speaks as the Father gives him words to speak and is thus the channeling voice of God. Hebrews 1-2 say it another way, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, wanting you to understand that he was the voice of God going back to the creation of the world. <laughs> he is the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, this reminds us of yet another facet of God's communication. It's powerful. It's powerful. And it found its greatest power in the person and work of Jesus powerful so powerful that the voice of God can create can command and condemn very powerful and Jesus was not only the exact representation of that but he was the ultimate fulfillment of the voice of God and its power finally Jesus was the was the word of God in that. The word of God was always, when he uttered, present. Meaning he was present where and how his word was uttered. Whenever his words came to men, his presence was there with them as well. When someone wrote scripture, they were not doing it alone in a room. They were doing it in the presence of the Spirit carrying them along, writing these words. Where his word is, his presence is, and Jesus is the word of God in that he is the ultimate divine presence. In fact, going to Colossians 1, 15 through 17, 
Paul, one of the apostles, says it perfectly. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. There we go again with the creation. His presence was at creation. Forward. At creation. See, this is the little stuff you notice when you start really just going over your scriptures and asking the questions about what does it mean for Jesus to be the word of God? Why does it keep going back to the created act? Because he was always this. Not just in the incarnation, he was always this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he, before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so his divine presence, as it often, not often, always did, left people transformed. In fact, this text gives us a beautiful picture of what this divine presence looks like when it says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that phrase, dwelt among us, has a past application in the scriptures. Every time we would talk about the, the tent of meeting or the, the tabernacle or the temple, the place where the people of God would meet God, that he was inhabiting this tent, or he pitched his tent amongst his people so that his presence would be near them. But here's the difference. The difference was, whether it be the tent of meeting which was reserved for Moses, or whether it was the tabernacle or the temple which God's presence was reserved to be in a place called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place, it was still, while near, not exactly present and with people. For only the high priest could go to the Holy of Holies and only once a year. So, Jesus is a whole other kind of presence. And that's why it means, it says, the Lord became flesh, the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, pitched his tent among us. In other words, he pitched his tent, not in the Holy of Holies, but in the human flesh. So his presence is nearer to us than it ever was in his incarnation. That's meant to blow our minds a little. It's meant to blow our minds. And it's also meant to give us great hope because nobody, even as far as God was tucked away in the Holy of Holies, nobody went to temple, nobody went to tabernacle and did not come away after sacrifices and after worship without having been changed in some way. At the very least, they understood that their sins were atoned for in a way they didn't when they walked into that place lugging a sacrifice. And so us being near in a way that's completely different than the temple and tabernacle and tent of meeting, because we know that even though Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended back to the right hand of the Father and is not technically, physically here with us, he says, I will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And it is that same Holy Spirit that enables his presence to remain in us, as Matthew 28 tells us, I will always be with you to the end of the age. He meant that knowing the Holy Spirit would mediate his presence 
both in me and in us. And so his presence is here with us in a way, unlike any way throughout all of history. Again, meant to blow our minds. That his divine presence is as such. So the last question we're going to answer before we, can, we close today. How is the word of God, Jesus, how is he being light for us? How is he being light for us? And he is light for us in an incredible way. In other words, if you were to think about it in these terms, uh, we're in the Christmas season, right? And you have various lights. You have, you know, modest setups where you can barely notice that someone has Christmas lights in or around their house. And, and then you have Clark Griswold-like setups where the lights emanate and take down power grids. You have all these different setups. Let's just think bigger. Down the road from my house, we have a private runway. <laughs> and I always think, man, I would not want to fly a plane and try to land there at night. Runway lights are not very bright. I mean, this is like a very, very private runway. I'd rather land at DFW. These bright, shining lights. This is the contrast. So many of the light, so many of the lights that we move towards to get out of the dark of this world are dull and faded, and you always have to squint to see them. Why is it we are attracted to dimly lit things? Yeah, we are. My guy's in the White House. Dimly lit thing. Very dimly lit. My NFL team is winning. Real dim light. He is light for us as the word of God in a completely different way. He is kajillion lumens bright and provides a landing spot for three longings of your heart. The first is this. He gives us a landing spot in being light for us for our worship. For our worship. We are beings of worship. We can't help it. We just do that. We just worship. We ascribe worth and greatness and glory to things. And we think great thoughts about them. Whether it be people or things or ideas. Here is something that should inspire awe in God coming to us in Advent, being light as the word of God for us. Jesus is coming, his living, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It's a bright runway saying everything God planned, he succeeded at. Everything he promised he would do, he fulfilled. Jesus is the word of God, the embodiment of the promise kept that God would accomplish his redemption and fulfill all things. Jesus is that word of God. And as a light, 
He is a bright, shining light that should draw us to worship him because just him succeeding at everything he ever set out to do is awe-inspiring. When was the last time you succeeded at everything that you set out to do? I set out to help a friend with a car this week. And I set out to just change some brakes, change a, uh, a, or a, uh, a spring and strut assembly. And whether this sounds complicated to you or not, it's not that complicated. Just YouTube it. Um, <laughs> no matter how much time I exile or what I think needs to happen, it never happens exactly as I plan it. That moment when you're taking off a stubborn hub lug nut and it just wouldn't come and, and the more you put pressure out, the more you're going, uh-oh. And the thread stem busts off into the lug nut. That fairly simple job did not go as I planned. We figured it out and it went great after that. But when was the last time Everything you do goes as you planned. My wife planned to have all of Christmas up long before Thanksgiving. We're putting stuff up yesterday. And we might be doing a little bit today. When was the last time your plans, his plans never failed. They always succeeded. He is worthy of awe in our worship in a way that I am not and that you are not, and that nothing out there is. Gives us a landing spot for our worship, a proper one. Gives us a landing spot for our faith. More specifically, our faith response. You see, we are also not just people of worship, we're people of faith. We put our trust in things. We believe in things. And as a result of that trust and belief, whatever obligation we feel to that trust and belief, we act on. And in Jesus, as the, as the incarnate word of God, he is a light that provides a landing spot that is proper for our faith response. Whatever things, there are many things you can believe in. I believe that because of the laws of physics that, by the way, God created, I can cross a bridge and it generally, most of the time, will not fall. I believe in that. That's actually a good belief. It's good to trust. We are people of trust and belief. How often is it we see the hashtag science? Now, sometimes that means real science, and sometimes that means what I think is science. But it betrays an attitude of the heart is that we believe in stuff. We put our faith in stuff. Like, like if I'm going to put my faith in something, if I'm going to put my lives in something, it's going to be good, hard science. We just trust the science until we don't trust the science, you know? We're people of faith. There's a lot of good science that we can put good little f faith in. But you were meant to do something greater with your big faith. I was going to say big f faith, but you know. Uh, <laughs> people's minds. Well, I just said it, so. Um, 
capital F faith. Better way of saying that. We were meant to exercise capital F faith in something greater. And Jesus as the light gives us the object in which to put our faith. In fact, it's so plain in Jesus that we are truly without excuse, all of us. The gospel and what God has done through Jesus is just really plain. And, and it's not just the, the Jesus who is the light, who's a light as an example or a light as a good teacher or a light as a, a wise man or a, a truthful man or a moral man. It, he is a light in that Putting faith in him is something he actually commands you to do. To obey. To trust. To believe. Not to choose your own way. Not to exercise faith in lesser things. So while Jesus is certainly a virtue of example, virtue and an example, you cannot believe what you believe about Jesus from the scriptures and not come away without understanding he has obligated us to respond in faith to that. We should not ignore his words. Finally, as a bright, shining light, as the word of God, he provides a landing spot for our affections, our love, Again, we are people of many affections. We love many things. We can love a spouse. We can love a, a sibling, a parent, friend, a mentor. We can love many things, and it's good to love many things. But capital L, love, was meant for something greater. Capital A, affections, were meant for something greater. And he is a light in that he has given you a clear landing strip for your affections. To love something is to know it more deeply, to seek it out over all things. It's okay to lowercase L the NFL or even the Dallas Cowboys. They're hard to love. But even now, in a time where they're hard to love, people still love them because they search for reasons to love them. What other coach could we get? Do we sign Dak or do we not sign Dak? We're obviously in a pickle. How do we get ourselves out of it? So you search websites, you read rumors of what might be. It's all a way to help yourself love what's hard to love. <laughs> Not only is Jesus a proper light, a proper landing strip for your affections and love, he doesn't make it hard to love him. It makes it quite easy to know him more deeply. It is our love for him that truly, ultimately, will have to motivate you to pray. Not, not a check mark on your to-do list, not 
an obligation you feel guilty about if you don't do, but your love for him will put you before him in prayer. It is your love and affections for him that will make you want to be where he is, do what he does, love what he loves. In other words, you will never be a missionary until you understand Jesus is a missionary and you know that he is the greatest object of your affections and love. And because he's a missionary, obviously I'm going to take the gospel to people who need it in my world, my neighbor, my friends, my family members, my enemy, because that's what he's doing. Because he has the gospel and he's taking it to people. And he is drawing men and women and boys and girls to himself every day. I want to be where he's at. Only our affections will drive us to that kind of missionary ethic. Only our affections and knowing that they find their resting spot, their landing spot, in the light of the world, Jesus, the word of God. And so to that end, let's pray.